Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. The 1997 animated movie Anastasia was an epic musical fantasy film directed and produced by former Walt Disney Animation Studios directors Don Bluth and Gary Goldman in association with Fox Animation Studios, distributed by 20th Century Fox, and starring the voices of Meg Ryan, John Cusack, Kelsey Grammer, Hank Azaria, Christopher Lloyd, and Angela Lansbury. All wonderful talents for a fantasy epic. The story is a loose adaptation of the legend of Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolaevna of Russia, which claims that she, in fact, escaped the execution of her family. For many years, this legend existed in different forms and is still believed by some, although recent science has proved otherwise beyond any shadow of a doubt. The movie's basic plot centers around an 18-year-old amnesiac orphan named Anya, who, in hopes of finding some trace of her family, sides with con men who wish to take advantage of her likeness to the Grand Duchess. One wizardly character involved in both the legend and the real story we'll be talking about is Rasputin, a wandering faith healer and mystic who became attached to the royal family and suffered an early death as a result. The film was met with criticism by some historians to its fantastical retelling of the life of the Grand Duchess, though it enjoyed a positive reception from many critics, not for any true retelling of history, but for its ability to entertain. From a $50 million budget, Anastasia grossed $139,800,000 worldwide, making it a very profitable film. It received nominations for several awards, including for Best Original Song, Journey to the Past, and Best Original Musical or Comedy Score at the 70th Academy Awards. The success of Anastasia spawned various adaptations of the film into other media, including a direct-to-video spin-off film, a computer game, books, toys, and a stage musical which premiered in 2016. The last full year of Anastasia's life, the real Anastasia, 1917, was an incredible year in history. And although most of her 17 years enjoyed luxury that few humans have ever experienced, her last year was spent living under the shadow of death. You can see it when you look at her photographs. There's a sadness in her eyes in that last year that bespeaks of a known destiny. As one of five Romanov children and the youngest of the four daughters, Anastasia belonged to the wealthiest family in all of Europe and Russia, a dynasty that had lasted over 300 years. The family had many palaces, yachts, 
and all the trappings of material wealth, such as richly designed Fabergé eggs, magnificent gems, palace rooms, like the Amber Room, all trimmed in gold. And they hosted state parties and balls that set the example for the world in terms of luxurious furnishings and entertainment. It was a lifestyle known to few and talked about and envied by many, most especially the millions of poor peasants and laborers in Russia who could barely manage a loaf of bread and a pot of soup on any given day. The world seemed to be turning upside down with war and revolution in 1917, not just for the Romanovs and Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, who was forced to abdicate the throne in March of 1917, but for many others as well. World War I had been raging since 1914 and would continue through 1918. In January of 1917, unknown saboteurs set off the Kingsland explosion at Kingsland, modern-day Lyndhurst, New Jersey, one of the events leading to the United States' involvement in World War I. Also in the U.S., newly elected to a second-term President Woodrow Wilson calls for peace without victory in Germany. The U.S. had not yet entered the war, which had begun in 1914 and which was raging in Europe and North Africa as the warring factions, consisting of the Central Powers, those being Germany and Austria-Hungary, and later the Ottoman Empire, Turkey plus the Middle East and Bulgaria, and the Allies, consisting of Serbia, Russia, France and its empire, Belgium, Montenegro, Britain and its empire, including self-governing colonies like Canada and Australia, as well as Portugal, Japan, Greece, Romania, China, and towards the end of the war, various South American countries, including Brazil and Peru. As it did in World War II, Italy started with the losing side and then joined the winning side midway through the conflict. More than 70 million military personnel, including 60 million Europeans, were mobilized, making this the war to end all wars, which it didn't. One of the largest wars in history. Over 9 million combatants and 7 million civilians died as a result of World War I, including the victims of a number of genocides. A casualty rate exacerbated by the belligerents' technological and industrial sophistication and the tactical stalemate caused by grueling trench and gas warfare. It was one of the deadliest conflicts in history and paved the way for major political changes including revolutions in many of the nations involved, which is why we are mentioning it now. The war devastated many countries and left many people homeless and out of work, all very open to political forces promising to put food on their tables. In February of 2017, the Atlantic U-boat campaign resurged after Germany announced its U-boats would resume unrestricted submarine warfare, rescinding the Sussex Pledge the non-aggression agreement Germany had signed after one of their subs sank a British passenger ship called the Lusitania in 1915. More than 1,100 perished, including more than 120 Americans. A scar that the U.S. carried for two years before joining the war as an independent actor. And by February 3rd, the U.S. severed diplomatic relations with Germany, finally calling in their chips. Matahari, the subject of one of our future episodes, 
was arrested in Paris for spying. That month also, on February 24th, United States Ambassador to the United Kingdom, Walter Hines Page, was shown the intercepted Zimmerman telegram in which Germany offered to give the American Southwest back to Mexico if Mexico declared war on the United States. How Germany was going to accomplish that seems rather vague, but they had high opinions of themselves during all the wars that they lost, mainly because they were fighting for the wrong leaders and the wrong reasons. In Petrograd, Russia, the February Revolution began when women calling for bread started riots which spontaneously spread throughout the city March 12th, days after the Russian Duma declared a provisional government. And by March 15th, Emperor Nicholas II of Russia abdicated his throne and his son's claims. This was considered to be the end of the Russian Empire after 196 years. In April, the U.S. declared war on Germany, and a few days later, Vladimir Lenin arrived at the Finland station in Petrograd, releasing his thesis on socialism, which spread like wildfire through the cities and countryside of Russia, promising workers and peasants a fair share of the wealth if they joined the revolution. But resistance to his and fellow socialist Leon Trotsky's ideas still raged through July, and it would not be until October 1917 that all the pieces would come together for the socialist revolution that would send Russia on an 80-year downhill slide through first socialism, then on to communism. On May 13th, in a remote little grove near Fatima, Portugal, an area which had also been ravaged by political discord and a silencing of the church, 10-year-old Lucia Santos and her cousins Francisco and Jacinta Marto witnessed the first of five holy apparitions they would experience between that day and October 13th of that year. As a messenger from God, which the children described as the Lady of Carmelite, appeared to them and began to share her vision of what was to take place in the world. How would 17-year-old Anastasia, the daughter of the wealthiest monarch in Europe, a socialist revolutionary named Vladimir Lenin, a wandering faith healer and mystic named Rasputin, and a 10-year-old farm girl in Portugal be connected in one of the bloodiest years in human history? Answers to all those questions and more in parts one and two of Anastasia, Rasputin, and the Fall of Russia, beginning now at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Anastasia was born Anastasia Nikolaevna in Petroboritz, Russia, a town near St. Petersburg, formerly called Peterhof, on June 18, 1901. Anastasia's mother was Prince Alex of Hesse-Darmstadt, Germany, also known as Alexandra Feodorovna, who became known as Empress Alexandra after her marriage. 
Anastasia's father, Nicholas II, was Russia's final czar and part of the Romanov dynasty that had ruled the country for three centuries. Anastasia had four siblings, three older sisters named Olga, Tatiana, and Maria, and a younger brother named Alexei, who was heir to the throne. When Anastasia was born, her parents and extended family were disappointed that she was a girl. They had hoped for a son who would be their heir apparent to the throne. He would come later. Tsar Nicholas II went for a long walk to compose himself before going to visit Tsarina Alexandra and the newborn Anastasia for the first time. In January of 1905, in St. Petersburg, unarmed demonstrators led by Father Georgi Capone were fired upon by soldiers of the Imperial Guard as they marched toward the Winter Palace to present a petition to Tsar Nicholas II of Russia. That day came to be called Bloody Sunday or Red Sunday. Bloody Sunday caused grave consequences for the Tsarist autocracy governing Imperial Russia. The events in St. Petersburg provoked public outrage and a series of massive strikes that spread quickly throughout the industrial centers of the Russian Empire. The massacre on Bloody Sunday is considered to be the start of the active phase of the Revolution of 1905. In addition to beginning the 1905 revolution, historians such as Lionel Cochin in his book, Russia in Revolution, viewed the events of Bloody Sunday to be one of the key events which led to the Russian Revolution of 1917. Perhaps the most significant effect of Bloody Sunday was the drastic change in attitude of the Russian peasants and workers. Previously, the Tsar had been seen as the champion of the people. In dire situations, the masses would appeal to the Tsar, traditionally through a petition, and the Tsar would respond to his people, promising to set things right. The lower classes placed their faith in the Tsar. Any problems that the lower classes faced were associated with the boyars of Russia. However, after Bloody Sunday, the Tsar was no longer distinguished from the bureaucrats and was held personally responsible for the tragedy that occurred. The social contract between the Tsar and the people had been broken, and that delegitimized the position of the Tsar and his divine right to rule. Although Bloody Sunday was not initiated as a revolutionary or rebellious movement, the repercussions of the government's reaction laid the foundations for revolution by bringing into question autocracy and the legitimacy of the Tsar. So now we can see how the Tsar and his family, who had inherited the throne and were living in style, became the targets of hundreds of thousands of malcontents. Actually, contrary to popular belief, the Tsar's children, including Anastasia, were raised as simply as possible. They slept on hard camp cots without pillows, except when they were ill, took cold baths in the morning, and were expected to tidy their rooms and do needlework to be sold at various charity events when they were not otherwise occupied. Most in the household, including the servants, generally called the Grand Duchess by her first name and patronym, Anastasia Nikolaevna, and did not use her title or style. She was occasionally called by the French version of her name, Anastasi, or by the Russian nickname Nastya, Nastas, or Nastenka. Other family nicknames for Anastasia 
were Malankaya, meaning little one, or Shvibzik, the Russian word for imp. Try that one a few times real fast. Shvibzik. Living up to her nicknames, young Anastasia grew into a vivacious and energetic child, described as short and inclined to be chubby, with blue eyes and strawberry blonde hair. Margareta Agar, a governess to the four grand duchesses, said one person commented that the toddler Anastasia had the greatest personal charm of any child she had ever seen. While often described as gifted and bright, she was never interested in the restrictions of the schoolroom, according to her tutors Pierre Gilliard and Sidney Gibbs. Anna Virabova described Anastasia as lively, mischievous, and a gifted actress. Her sharp, witty remarks sometimes hit sensitive spots. Anastasia's daring occasionally exceeded the limits of acceptable behavior. She undoubtedly held the record for punishable deeds in her family. For a naughtiness, she was a true genius, said Gleb Bodkin, son of the court physician Yevgeny Bodkin, who later died with the family at Yekaterinburg. Anastasia sometimes tripped the servants and played pranks on her tutors. As a child, she would climb trees and refuse to come down. Once, during a snowball fight at the family's Polish estate, Anastasia rolled a rock into a snowball and threw it at her older sister, Tatiana, knocking her to the ground. A distant cousin, Princess Nina Georgievna, recalled that Anastasia was nasty to the point of being evil and would cheat, kick, and scratch her playmates during games. She was affronted because the younger Nina was taller than she was. She was less concerned about her appearance than her sister's. Hallie Hermione Reeves, a best-selling American author and wife of an American diplomat, described how 10-year-old Anastasia ate chocolates without bothering to remove her long, white opera gloves at the St. Petersburg Opera House. Anastasia and her older sister Maria were known within the family as the little pair. The two girls shared a room, often wore variations of the same dress, and spent much of their time together. Their older sisters, Olga and Tatiana, and were known as the big pair. The four girls sometimes signed letters Atma or O-T-M-A, which was derived from the first letters of their first names. Despite her energy, Anastasia's physical health was sometimes poor. The Grand Duchess suffered from painful bunions, which affected both of her big toes. Anastasia had a weak muscle in her back and was prescribed twice weekly massage. She hid under the bed or in a cupboard to put off the massage. Anastasia's older sister, Maria, reportedly hemorrhaged in December 1914 during an operation to remove her tonsils, according to her paternal aunt, Grand Duchess Olga Alexandrovna of Russia, who was interviewed later in her life. The doctor performing the operation was so unnerved that he had to be ordered to continue by Maria's mother. Olga Alexandrovna said she believed all four of her nieces bled more than was normal and believed they were carriers of the hemophilia gene, like their mother. Symptomatic carriers of the gene, while not hemophiliacs themselves, can have symptoms of hemophilia, including a lower-than-normal blood clotting factor that can lead to heavy bleeding. DNA testing on the remains of the royal family proved conclusively in 2009 that Alexei suffered from hemophilia B, a rarer form of the disease.
his mother and one sister, identified alternatively as Maria or Anastasia, were carriers. Therefore, had Anastasia lived to have children of her own, they may have been afflicted by the disease as well. Alexei's hemophilia was chronic and incurable, as frequent attacks caused permanent disability. And now we get into the very interesting subject of Rasputin. Anastasia's mother relied on the counsel of Grigory Rasputin, a Russian peasant and wandering starezor, or holy man, and credited his prayers with saving her ailing son on numerous occasions. Anastasia and her siblings were taught to view Rasputin as their friend and to share confidences with him. In the autumn of 1907, Anastasia's aunt, Grand Duchess Olga Alexandrovna of Russia, was escorted to the nursery by the Tsar to meet Rasputin. Anastasia, her sisters, and brother Alexei were all wearing their long white nightgowns. All the children seemed to like him, Olga recalled. They were completely at ease with him. Rasputin's friendship with the imperial children was evident in some of the messages he sent to them. In February 1909, Rasputin sent the imperial children a telegram advising them to love the whole of God's nature, the whole of his creation, in particular this earth. The mother of God was always occupied with flowers and needlework. However, one of the girl's governesses, Sofia Ivanovna Tyucheva, was horrified in 1910 that Rasputin was permitted access to the nursery when the four girls were in their nightgowns and Sofia wanted him barred. Nicholas asked Rasputin to avoid going to the nurseries in the future. The children were aware of the tension and feared that their mother would be angered by Tyucheva's actions. I'm so afraid that the governess can speak about our friend something bad. Anastasia's 12-year-old sister Tatiana wrote to their mother on March 8, 1910. I hope our nurse will be nice to our friend now. Tyucheva was eventually fired. She took her story to other members of the family. While Rasputin's visits to the children were, by all accounts, completely innocent in nature, the family was scandalized. Tyucheva told Nicholas's sister, Grand Duchess Xenia Alexandrovna of Russia, that Rasputin visited the girls, talked with them while they were getting ready for bed, and hugged and patted them. Tyucheva said the children had been taught not to discuss Rasputin with her, and were careful to hide his visits from the nursery staff. Xenia wrote on March 15, 1910, that she couldn't understand the attitude of Alex and the children to that sinister Grigory, who they considered to be almost a saint, when in fact, he's only a clist. In the spring of 1910, Maria Ivanovna Vishnyakova, a royal governess, claimed that Rasputin had raped her. Vishnyakova said the Empress refused to believe her account of the assault and insisted that everything Rasputin does is holy. Grand Duchess Olga Alexandrovna Vishnyakova's claim had been immediately investigated, but instead they caught the young woman in bed with a Cossack of the Imperial Guard. Vishnyakova was kept from seeing Rasputin after she made her accusation and was eventually dismissed from her post in 1913. But rumors persisted, and it was later whispered in society that Rasputin had seduced not only the Tsarina, 
but also the four grand duchesses. The gossip was fueled by ardent, yet by all accounts innocent, letters written to Rasputin by the Tsarina and the four grand duchesses, which were released by Rasputin and which circulated throughout society. My dear, precious, only friend, wrote Anastasia, how much I should like to see you again. You appeared to me today in a dream. I am always asking Mama when you will come. I think of you always because you are so good to me. This was followed by circulation of pornographic cartoons which depicted Rasputin having relations with the Empress, her four daughters, and Anna Virabova. After the scandal, Nicholas ordered Rasputin to leave St. Petersburg for a time, much to Alexandra's displeasure, and Rasputin went on a pilgrimage to Palestine. Despite the rumors, the imperial family's association with Rasputin continued until his murder on December 17, 1916. Our friend is so contented with our girlies, says they have gone through heavy courses for their age, and their souls have much developed. Alexandra wrote to Nicholas on December 6, 1916. After they were killed by the Bolsheviks, it was discovered Anastasia and her sisters were all wearing amulets bearing Rasputin's picture and a prayer. There was a legend connected to his death, which has remained shrouded in controversy for years. In the children's film Anastasia, Rasputin the wizard dies of drowning when his magic crystal is broken by Anastasia. There was no magic crystal, but he did seem to have an unearthly hold on the Tsar and his wife, who had met him by chance in 1905 and were spellbound by his ability to understand their situation, their place in history, and even their future when he eventually predicted their assassination. He was known in Russian as a Startsy, or Stranic, an odd person, or mystic, who was known to wander and was considered to be holy. It was rumored that he was a member of an order of monks. And history does tell us that although he did stay at one monastery, he never took the vows. He was adored by the royal family, but not necessarily their nannies, loved or endured by their friends, and hated by all the outsiders. In late 1906, he began acting as a healer for the Tsar and his wife's son, Alexei, who, as we already know, suffered from hemophilia and was Tsar Nicholas's only heir. At court, he was a divisive figure, seen by some as a mystic, by others as a religious charlatan. He was born a peasant, married, and had seven children, three of whom survived. One, Maria, eventually left for France, then the U.S., where she became first a dancer and later a lion tamer for the circus. She died in 1977. Rasputin's reputation was secured in the Romanov family after an incident in 1912 which involved Alexei, who had developed a hemorrhage in his right leg during a carriage ride. Alexei was in severe pain and delirious with fever, and the Tsarina, his mother, asked her friend, Anna Virabova, to contact Rasputin by telegram, which she did, receiving the answer, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. The next morning, Alexei's condition was unchanged, but Alexandra was encouraged by his message. 
Alexei's bleeding stopped the following day, and he recovered. Historian Robert Massey has called Alexei's recovery one of the most mysterious episodes of the whole legend, as the cause of healing was never determined. At any rate, the Tsarina was indebted to Rasputin for his advice and counsel. Most people would call it luck, but maybe it was something more. Meanwhile, Rasputin was becoming more and more resented on the outside, especially by anarchists and detractors of the royal family. And rumors were surfacing that he had raped a nun, that he was taking advantage of the royal family, that he was having an affair with the Tsar's wife, fondling the royal children as well. And cartoons began appearing in the papers of the day. The Pravda was a Bolshevik newspaper at the time that was only too happy to deliver the messages and they enjoyed a wide readership. According to Rasputin's daughter Maria, years later, Rasputin did look into the Klist sect that we mentioned earlier, which was known to turn to orgies for the stated purpose of nullifying sin's power. Go figure. But, she said, he turned them down. He was, however, becoming very popular as a faith healer and advisor, and women were calling on him regularly. He began drinking and began accepting bribes from his parishioners for royal favors. He did recommend that Tsar Nicholas take part leading the Russian front, which he did, and wouldn't you know it, Rasputin soon became the Tsarina's closest confidant. This closeness was used against him and the Romanovs by politicians and journalists who wanted to weaken the integrity of the dynasty, forced the Tsar to give up his power, and separate the Russian Orthodox Church from the state. Rasputin unintentionally fueled this fire by having disputes with clergy and by his very public lifestyle. On July 12, 1914, a 33-year-old peasant woman named Chionya Gosova tried to assassinate Rasputin by stabbing him outside his home in Pokrovsky. He was seriously wounded, and for a while there was fear he would not survive the attack. After an operation and recuperation at a hospital in Tiumen, he recovered, however. This was when he started to drink. On the night of December 17, 1916, the great Duke Dmitry Romanov, Prince Felix Yusupov, Vladimir Pyrskevich, a member of the Russian parliament, and Dr. Lazarin invited Rasputin to the Yusupov Palace under the pretense of a meeting, and according to at least one historian, to heal Felix's wife, Irina. Upon arrival, Rasputin was taken to a dining room in the basement. He was told that Irina had some guests, and Rasputin was to rest and drink tea until the guests left. Rasputin was offered pastries and wine, which he initially refused. This somewhat threw the prince into a panic. He told the other conspirators, who were waiting in another room off the stairs, that animal is not eating or drinking. When Felix returned, however, Rasputin had opened the wine and began to drink. After drinking a couple of glasses, he showed ill effects from the deadly poison lacing the wine. After a while, he may have started feeling something because he asked for tea. He then stood, walked around the room, then asked Felix to play the guitar and sing. And for two hours, this nightmare continued for Felix. When Felix Yusupov checked in with his co-conspirators next, he was pale. He said that Rasputin had drank the poisoned wine 
and snacked on the poisoned pastries with no obvious ill effects. When Felix again returned to his guest, he complained of burping and had some excessive salivation, but nothing more. The nerves of the murderers were beginning to fray. Felix decided to take a more direct approach. He brandished a revolver that Dmitry Pavlovich had given him, held a crucifix up for Rasputin to view, and said, Better say your prayers. Then shot him in the chest. Rasputin gave a cry and fell to the floor. Dmitri and the doctor allegedly then went for the car, one of them wearing Rasputin's coat and boots, and drove to Rasputin's apartment so any witnesses could see what they thought to be Rasputin exiting the car and going back into his apartment. In the meantime, Prince Felix Yusupov wanted to see Rasputin again, so he went back to Moika Palace and took another look. The body was still warm with small drops of blood coming from the wound. He lifted the body by the shirt and shook it and dropped it again to the floor. He then noticed that the left eye started to open, then the right eye. Suddenly, Rasputin leapt from the floor with a devil's look in his eyes and a wild cry and attacked Yusupov. This all according to Yusupov's account, written during his exile in Paris during the 1920s. Felix struggled for a moment and then broke free. The wounded Rasputin followed him upstairs and made it into the palace's courtyard before being shot again, this time by the politician, Pureskovich. Rasputin was crying out, Felix, Felix, I'll tell everything to the Tsarina. In panic, Pureskovich shot twice with the revolver, missing both, then bit himself on the wrist to make himself concentrate. He fired and struck Rasputin in the back, then again in the head. Rasputin finally fell, holding his head. Felix, now gone crazy, began to beat Rasputin with a rubber truncheon. Finally, Pureskovich had him pulled off the body. They took the body back into the house and discovered that Rasputin was still alive. He wheezed with each breath and was able to look at them through one eye. Finally, Dmitri and the doctor returned. The body was wrapped in a cloth and taken by car to the Petrovsky Bridge and dropped into the Malaya Nevka River. When two workmen noticed blood on the railing of the bridge and a boot was found on the ice below, river police began searching for the body. The body was retrieved two days later from the river. It appeared as if Rasputin had tried to claw his way out from the ice. He died from drowning after being unsuccessfully poisoned, shot three times, and beaten. He was buried in secret to avoid desecration. Thus ended Grigory Yefremovich Rasputin. But many theories today suggest that agents of the British Secret Intelligence Service, under the command of Oswald Rayner, who had attended school with Yusupov, were involved in Rasputin's assassination. Their motive? British agents were concerned that Rasputin was urging the Tsar to make a separate peace with Germany and withdraw from the war, which would allow Germany to dislodge a large number of troops from the Russian front and send them to the Western Front against the Brits. In his memoirs, A. A. Mordvinov reported that the four Grand Duchesses appeared, cold and visibly terribly upset by Rasputin's death, 
and sat huddled up closely together on a sofa in one of their bedrooms on the night they received the news. Mordvinov recalled that the young women were in a gloomy mood and seemed to sense the political upheaval that was about to be unleashed. Rasputin was buried with an icon signed on its reverse by Anastasia, her mother, and her sisters. She attended his funeral on December 21, 1916, and her family planned to build a church over the site of Rasputin's grave. Now, into these trying times, the man most responsible for the onset of socialism in Russia, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known as Lenin, appeared. He was a Russian communist revolutionary, politician, and political theorist. He served as head of government of Soviet Russia from 1917 to 1924, and of the Soviet Union from 1922 to 1924. Under his administration, Russia and then the wider Soviet Union became a one-party communist state governed by the Russian Communist Party. Ideologically a Marxist-style socialist, he developed political theories known as Leninism. One of his most famous quotes was that socialism was the path to communism. There are so many definitions of socialism that it boggles the mind. And every college professor, economist, politician, or guy down the street will give you a different answer. Socialism defined is a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership and democratic control of the means of production, as well as the political theories and movements associated with them. Social ownership varies. It can refer to forms of public, collective, or cooperative ownership, or to citizen ownership of equity. It can also be translated as taxation of businesses with the proceeds going to the public good. There are many varieties of socialism, and there is no single definition encapsulating all of them, though social ownership is the common element shared by its various forms. It is in practice, not words, that we see the true definition of socialism. Pared down to its basic common denominator, socialism is the antidote for capitalism. Capitalism allows business leaders and entrepreneurs to start their own companies, putting their own money at risk, and encourages self-reliance, hard work, education, and creativity. This will always leave people lower on the ladder, feeling overworked, underpaid, and striving hard, but often getting nowhere. So a political party arrives and offers socialism in any of its 100 forms as the answer. Support our party and we will level the playing field for you, imposing taxes on the achievers and giving it back to party faithfuls in the form of entitlements or special laws favoring ethnic or racial groups or any one of a hundred other groups demanding fairness. In Marx's system, this was all theory and changes were brought about peacefully. But Lenin had a better idea. Overthrow the monarchy using murder, riots, and executions. Take away homes and property and businesses and allow the workers in any company with over five people to own the company. Born to a wealthy middle-class family in Simbursk, Lenin embraced revolutionary socialist politics following his brother's 1887 execution 
expelled from Kazan Imperial University for participating in protests against the Russian Empire's czarist government. He devoted the following years to a law degree. He moved to St. Petersburg, Russia in 1893 and became a senior Marxist activist. In 1897, he was arrested for sedition and exiled to Shushinskoya for three years, where he married Nadezhda Krupskaya. After his exile, he moved to Western Europe, where he became a prominent theorist in the Marxist Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, the RSDLP. In 1903, he took a key role in that party's ideological split, leading the Bolshevik faction against Julius Martoy's Mensheviks. Encouraging insurrection during Russia's failed revolution of 1905, he later campaigned for the First World War to be transformed into a Europe-wide proletarian revolution, which, as a Marxist, he believed would cause the overthrow of capitalism and its replacement with socialism. After the 1917 February Revolution ousted the Tsar and established a provisional government, Lenin returned to Russia to play a leading role in the October Revolution, in which the Bolsheviks overthrew the new regime. As a large portion of Russia and Europe was being consumed by war and the onset of a repressive style of communism, and with the Romanovs removed from power and now placed under guard, awaiting their fate, three shepherd children in a little grove in Portugal were about to witness a series of miracles that appear to us even today as if God himself was trying to warn humankind that things were getting out of control. All coming up in part two of Anastasia, Rasputin, and the Fall of Russia. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. When we come back Sunday night, we'll cover the final months of the Romanovs and discuss the legends surrounding Anastasia, as well as the fascinating story of the Miracle of Fatima, also called the Miracle of the Sun. To this day, it remains an unexplained miracle, and it was witnessed by tens of thousands of people. Really strange, in my research, I found that another miracle of the sun happened exactly 100 years later to the day in Niger. Another warning? We'll talk about it. We need reviews at all three shows at Apple for you Apple users at 1001 Heroes and 1001 Classic Short Stories and at 1001 Stories for the Road. So help start out 2018 on a good foot for us and help a friend subscribe to our shows. We sure appreciate it. We also want to welcome Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com as one of our new podcatcher hosts. Thank you. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.